Hello and welcome to episode number 300 Whoa! of the Fabulous Pelton cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we are coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion Seattle Seahawks. Wow, 300 episodes. 300, and that's only the numbered weekly episodes, obviously. That's not counting bonus pods, emergency pods, talking taco times, uh, the one episode of Trader Bros. None of those oh. are counted. The one episode of Trader Bros counts in my heart. <laughs> well, just it, I mean, it definitely counts, just not towards the number 300. It's quite a milestone. Wow. We really have been talking to each other for way too long. <laughs> Amazingly, disturbingly, we were talking to each other before we even started recording this oh, podcast. Oh, no. If you count offline podcasts, we're at like 3 billion. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, some of the was back in the early nineties. The quality was not nearly oh, as good. Content. Recording, was, there was at no point where we were like this is amazing content. When t- <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's a recent thing. Is <laughs> us t- saying that the conversations that we're having are a quote amazing content, <laughs> or having to stop talking because this content is quote too good. <laughs> yes, having to save our conversations for the pod is a function of those oh three hundred episodes. <clears throat> Okay, so uh, what are we doing to celebrate 300 episodes? Well, later this week, okay. aspirationally on Thursday, oh hello, we'll have the best of episodes 201 through 300, the annual tradition. Wow. And when does the worst of come out? <laughs> Just right now. Right That's going to be this episode. The best of episodes. I feel like your best of episodes 201 for 300 is just me making incorrect predictions. There's a fair bit of that that's going to be in there. <laughs> I, I, I checked you know the notes. The producer for this podcast is a real asshole. <laughs> yes, I, it's true. <laughs> I checked the notes. The the listener Noah Cohen sent me his suggestions for oh, best wow. of, and using the fabulous Pelton quotes. And I said ninety seven percent chance of you not beating my agenda. So I was not really that far oh, off from you. Wow. You and your ninety nine percent chance. The difference between ninety nine and ninety seven is. Basically I mean, the same thing. It's three times as much as the way I'm choosing to view it. Uh-huh. Fair enough. So be on the lookout for that. And we also, hopefully at some point here, not too distant future, maybe if you get back to me with your edits, are going to have something fun, a, a fun offshoot of the Pelton cast or accompaniment to the Pelton cast. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So look out for that as maybe well. I'll, maybe I'll take a look at that. All right, should we get to this week's beer? Absolutely, we should. It's the uh, Hop Valley Crack and Stash IPA from Hop Valley Brewing Company, the official brewing company of the Seattle Crackerin. Appropriate this week because later in this pod, Ryan S. Clark of The Athletic, our original Kraken correspondent, is going to join us to check in on the Kraken, is of the all-star break, and talk about what's to come as we lead up to the trade deadline, the draft, and beyond. So very appropriate timing. Whoa, sudsy. Ah, oh, that tastes like disappointment. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, since you have the can, do you want to read about this beer? Because they, they don't actually mention it on their website, oddly. From the mysterious depths of Hop Valley Brewing comes the legendary Kraken Stash, a mythically smooth IPA brewed with cryo hops that's sure to rock your boat. 
So it's, it comes in 19.2 ounce cans because it's designed to be sold at Climate Pledge Arena, where I have I've had one of these earlier this season. Uh, friend of the pod, Ross Seiler, a big fan of the Kraken Stash IPA. Now explain to me why it being 19.2 ounces helps it be better designed to serve in the arena. I guess that's just the size of beer that people want. At Climate Pledge in an arena. arena, I can't tell whether I should be mad because they're screwing you out of the 24 ounces <laughs> or happy that they're giving you an extra 3.2 ounces. That's how I'm choosing to view it. It's okay. 3.2 ounces over the tall boy. That's how a, much, how my, much did you pay for this can of my, beer? I, I'm actually, I don't even remember. It was a six pack at Costco. A six pack of 19.2 beers? Yeah. Did it have the plastic top or was on the top? or the Plastic the, top, yes. It was, was it the, um, uh, 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 you know, the disposable kind? It, it was not. Well, they say they're compostable. The they're actually kind. not. They're actually not? No, it's only like the Fremont ones that are made of paper. You the paper compost, ones are compostable. But the plastic ones are still are not. Those are like recycled. Even if they're not though. rings. I don't think so. Wow. <laughs> Based on what I've read on the internet. It, it's not as bad as the uh, traditional, but <laughs> much like everything with the Kraken. Um, oh no! But so okay. Do, do you think that that six pack that you purchased was the equivalent to the price of one of these at a Kraken game? Yeah, probably was about the equivalent to that. <laughs> I mean, that's probably about right. Well, I hope it's good. <laughs> My advice to everybody listening out there is to find a way to sneak these suckers into the into the arena. Oh, that's always your advice, I feel like. Oh, it really is. Uh, so, yeah, so enjoyed it at the arena, and uh, they they were not out in the wild for a long period of time because Ross was looking for them, but uh, alerted me a couple months ago that they were out there, and I noticed them today when I was making my rounds at Costco and looking for something to drink on this pod because we got a few toasts to get to. Hello. This is good, though. I, w- I will give it up to our friends at Hot Valley Brewing. It Where is, is Hot Valley Brewing, by the way? It's in Oregon. <laughs> Let the, let the record show the look that Tristan is making. So weirdly, they are also the uh, the official beer of the Las Vegas Raiders, which is quite a combo. I don't I don't know why they're going for the official beer market, but that's that's their strategy. What a rollout they've had! Cool uh, inaugural year, Kraken. It's in Oregon. That's that's the important thing to note is that there are no breweries in Seattle, Washington. Yeah, just no one who could have stepped forward to do that. <laughs> you got to go to. I also noted it's in Eugene, Oregon. I didn't know it was Eugene. I was not aware of that. <clears throat> was Palo Alto already busy? <laughs> Come on, the, this is the official beer of the Kraken. It is. Ah, uh, tastes like shit. <laughs> Oh boy, that's pretty good. <laughs> oh my god! All right, first off, congrats to Renton's own hello Zach Levine and Seattle's Dejounte Murray for being chosen NBA All Stars. Levine making his second consecutive appearance, while Murray is a first-time All Star after being chosen Monday as a replacement for the injured Draymond Green. Based on my research. I believe this is the first time that we have ever had two players born in the state of Washington in the same NBA All-Star game. Wow. There's been two high schoolers from the state of Washington because Detlef Schrempf and John Stockton. Oh, no. But <laughs> only Stockton was born John, in the state John of Washington. John Stockton is as much from Seattle or Washington State as this beer is. <laughs> I mean, he's from Washington State, <laughs> but he's as much from Seattle as that beer is. I 100% yeah. agree on that. Less probably so than Eugene, <laughs> almost certainly. 
<laughs> Murray also, and thanks to a friend of the pod, Mark Hobner, for pointing this out on Twitter to me, the first Rainier Beach product ever to be an NBA wow. star, which is kind of wild given the players that they've had there. I'm kind of shocked by that. Yeah. That's awesome. Definitely. I mean, I think DeJounte's inclusion as an all-star, especially he's not playing for a great team, right? No. The, the Spurs are out of the playoffs. They're out of even the play-in game, right? In the play-in tournament. I believe they are currently 12th in the Western Conference, although their point differential is surprisingly strong. That's that's what Greg Popovich is all about. In his, <laughs> in his 50th season, much like Pete Carroll saying, you'd see that DVOA? <laughs> Just like, we did, Pete. We did. Uh, uh but no, it's awesome to see somebody who is not playing for one of the best teams in the West being included as an all-star. And someone who's not like a fixture, like he's a first-timer, and this kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, he you know developed and played well last year, but I don't think if you would have told anyone at the start, if you told people at the start of the season, okay, there's going to be like two first-time guards on the West team. Mm-hmm. Okay, John Morant. But the other one, De'Aaron Fox, Shea Gilgis Alexander, those were one of your guesses. Even not better DeJounte than Murray. Shea Gilgis Alexander isn't in the All Star game. <laughs> Wasn't a serious contender. There we go. So Dejounte, yeah, I'm, and you know we we'll see if he continues playing at this level. But I mean, he's been top ten by warp much of the season. Wow, so I was going to ask if he's a deserving All Star. Oh, very much metrics. so. I mean, I he was like a very narrow thirteen. If you would have said no, that computer was going the way of Julius Randle. Oh no. <laughs> Well, it was the, the the assistant's computer. You were the Julius Randle. That's but, what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, no, I, I had him like very narrowly off the All Star team. I picked a couple weeks ago, but he's totally deserving. So that's awesome to see. I mean, somebody who's he's come off injuries, right? He's yeah, had an ACL, yeah, an a- ACL tear, and then to come back from that, be playing for the Spurs, make the All Star team. And what what year is this for him? He's not that young. Well, let's see. The lone year at UW for him would have been, I want to say, 2014, 15. Nah, it wasn't that long ago. I don't know. We can look up this information, but it's like his sixth or seventh season. It's awesome. Yeah. All right. So continuing the All-Star edition of the Toast, Russell Wilson led the NFC team to the win in the Pro Bowl's precision passing skill competition, scoring a record 29 points to nine total for the AFC team led by Mac Jones. The less said about the actual Pro Bowl, the better. Russell Wilson himself scored 29 points? Correct. And the entire AFC team? I mean, the, I believe the teams were like the quarterback and then one other position player. Okay. So it makes sense that the other position players weren't scoring a lot in these drills. But also, Russell Wilson had Kirk Cousins on his team. Uh, I don't know for sure if Kirk Cousins participated in this competition. There was the thing, there was a tweet where somebody was like, they should, before every Olympic event, have one person who's just like a, 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 a random that... person go out and, do you think this was previous footage, not from this year? They were like, you should have a person who's just a normal person go out before every event and show Yeah, you. that was a different thing, because Kirk Cousins was throwing two receivers. Or no, he was throwing to he's targets throwing to the, the and targets there were and defenders. The defenders. That's this, not what this, this was? The precision passing competition, I've watched the video of Russell Wilson's performance. There were like different moving pylons that you had to hit uh, that represented receivers. There were some targets, I think, in the back. Okay. But it was it was different than the one that Kirk Cousins was Well, first off, it was an all-time tweet. It was. <laughs> an all-time <laughs> great a, tweet. I believe that was Richard, Sher- Richard Sherman. Roger Sherman. Who had that? that it was tweet. it was incredible, and then just like I had to watch it, I was compelled by Kirk Cousins throwing the ball and just like cheering against him getting the ball <laughs> into the hole. It was it was incredible. Uh, 
Russell Wilson in the actual Pro Bowl went 9 of 17 for 77 yards through two of the games. Seven. That's right. Seven interceptions as the NFC lost 41 to 35. Wow. Rush wa- Russ washed. And in the other all-star event this weekend in Las Vegas, Jordan Eberle had a goal Saturday as the Kraken's first all-star, but the Pacific Division lost 6-4 to four to the Metropolitan Division in the semifinals of the NHL all-star game under that divisional format. So there we are with the toast. I feel like this week we should just get in right into Kraken. Sorry, I missed that. I was distracted. <laughs> <laughs> they lost it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. I yeah, I that, that joke was going to be in there at some point. All right, I think with the toast in the book, it's time to just get right into it. It's time for Coach's Corner. Wow. We're going straight into this? You have told me, speaking of conversations that we had to save for the pod, <laughs> that you could not tell me about this game, but you were s- most excited you've ever been for Coach's Corner, I think oh, is what you said. I, I also told you that I didn't quite I didn't quite get the story. <laughs> I didn't quite get the angle for you Coach's Corner. You didn't nail it? I didn't quite nail it, because I've told this story a lot of times since the game happened. So, uh, I, I feel like I need to hone in on the fourth graders game. Those, those are the games where it's like, that's that's where there's some strategy involved. That's where... I've really come to understand in these last couple of weeks something that I, I I questioned earlier, and that is coaching matters. Oh wow! Not in not for NFL defensive coordinators, no, 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 obviously. No, 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 no. no, we've been very clear about this. Not even just defensive coordinators, head coaches also. I don't believe head coaches, offensive coordinators, defensive coordinators. None of those matter. Fourth grade basketball, though. Okay, that's where coaches can really shine. So pregame. You're always kind of like eyeing the other team, right? There's only four teams in this league, so now we have completed the circuit of the other three teams that we're <laughs> going to play. Uh, I don't even know. I don't even know what the name of this team was after some Eastern Conference team, right? Now, now you're starting to develop rivalries when you face these teams a second time. Oh, we actually are. Like things get they get a little heated in the games, uh, but so like I'm watching the other team, and I'm like, I think I think we can play with this team, but they look pretty good. Right, they had a couple of players who were huge, way bigger, and that the great equalizer among children's basketball in fourth grade is literally just height. Like that is that that is the one thing that you can't coach, because Lord knows you can coach everything else. <laughs> That's what you're doing, all right. So pregame, two of the best players on my team haven't showed up yet. And I'm like actually kind of stressed, partially because I just don't want to figure out the lineups. It's a lot easier if there's an even 10 players and I can send in five and then send in the other five every five minutes. So that makes my life quite a bit easier without having to figure this out. But also, I've got some, some, some uh, 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 groups of five, some lineups that I feel really good about. Yeah. Where I'm like, I want to work with these five players together and then these other five players together. You develop I some that, units. I, I Last week, it's something that I previously had never done when coaching, but it's like, I know now, like last week I mentioned in the second half, I took a player from the, the first unit and moved them to the second unit because we need a little bit of extra scoring in the second half. So I'm like, okay, he's now a fixture of the second unit. He's our scorer there, right? He's, he, he's the Jamal Crawford of that group. Correct. And... So two of the best players are not there, like right when the game is starting. And all of a sudden, I just have to completely flip and be like, the second unit is going first, and then the first unit is going after that. And the first quarter comes around. Fortunately, all the kids showed up. It was like the last second one of, or one of them showed up like right before the game started, and everybody on the team was just like, Peyton, yes! <laughs> I was like, hell yes. I was like, thank God he's here. 
because uh, we needed it. But we also needed our big man who wasn't there at that point when the game started. He came in like three minutes into the first quarter. Uh, first quarter rolls around. Eight to nothing. They beat us. And this kid, they've got a kid with long flowing hair. I'll tell you what. I'm getting Adam Morrison flashbacks. Except he gets to the hoop, right? He has long flowing hair. He's blowing past our defenders who – Needless to say, like our, our, our perimeter defense is not amazing. And so anybody who wants to drive to the hoop can get to the hoop if they would like. He's blowing by our perimeter defenders. And I'm like, we have to do something about this, right? So there's him, and then there's one kid who's literally like basically the same size as me, the same height as me. And we have no answer for him, especially because our big man hadn't showed up yet, which is a problem that most coaches in the NBA do not have to face. That is, that is accurate. I mean, there are, I will grant, some coaches have to deal with injuries. So, you know, Steve Curry had to deal with injuries for almost an entire season. And COVID outbreaks. COVID, <laughs> COVID out, I've had to deal with those too. So... COVID outbreaks, injuries, I understand. L- look, you know, when KD got hurt, when Clay was out for the entire season, it makes a lot of sense. When Dane being out right now, I now really can empathize with those coaches. Second quarter rolls I'd around. I'd love to hear you tell those coaches that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Second quarter rolls around. Look, I have a better record than Chauncey does. Um, <clears throat> second quarter rolls around, and I'm like, Luca, you need to shut down that kid with the long hair. I'm like, you stick on him. Do not let him get by you. Because he was pulling up for some jumpers, air balls, or just like totally clang. Because these are fourth graders. <laughs> and <laughs> any perimeter shots that are happening are not going in. Let me just tell you, it it is the exact opposite of the NBA where shooting a three, giving up an open three is a bad shot to give up. In this league, any shot outside of a two-foot radius around the hoop is a very good shot. You really want to pack up. the paint. Yes. So I'm like, I'm like, Luca, just don't let him get by you. That's it. Do not let him get by you. Don't let him get layups. Make him take jumpers. Slag off of him five feet if you have to, right? D- dare him into taking full-on Russell Westbrook defense here, right? We want him shooting whenever we can. And Luca gets out there and starts banging with him. And these kids were, like, getting kind of heated. Like, my big man showed up at the beginning of the game, and – he was playing against their big man. And he has like a like a three inch height height disadvantage there. But like we needed him in there to to neutralize things a little bit, uh, to go in there, snag some boards, get those hands up, and uh, end up making a miraculous comeback. Like also this kid, the kid with the flowing hair. I don't know if this was Morrison style or not. I don't remember exactly. Did not pass. And I was like, we're yeah, out no, there. That, that actually checks out, yes. Every time he touched the ball, he was going to shoot it. So I'm like, if you get in front of him, just he's going to shoot, right? You don't even really have to worry. We can all suck on to him if we have to because that's the deal. If he's not going to shoot, you could have four or five on one, and that's kind of the situation he's that happens. Pass. Because he's not going to pass. Our team on the other end, we were playing fucking basketball. It was wild. I, I was so excited about it. There was a play where Luca dropped it off to an open player and hit a little jump shot. Again, two feet or whatever. But like wide open, still two feet away. He completed a pass. We, I, we were dishing the rock around. I was like, get the ball to Peyton in space, right? Because he, he's... Peyton's ability is he doesn't he doesn't drive really, but he he can get into space and he can hit open shots. So you get him, you just need to get him the rock in the space. And I was like, find him when that's happening to the kids. And I was like, lock on to this. There's only two kids who are shooting. Lock on to those kids. Let's shut them down on defense. 
ended up being down 8 nothing at the end of the first quarter. And we won 34-26. to The other team was so mad about it. And that's what I fucking loved. Like, the other coaches... Because to me, like, so deeply do I not care about this, you know? Yeah, Where it's it, like, it really comes through in the... But, like, you understand it? what I'm saying? I know that none of these kids are going to make a profession out of basketball, that they are fourth graders. The only benefit that I can see to children's sports is uh, 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 possibly make maybe some small fitness regimes, right? Or being able to listen to instruction, organization, or whatever. Understanding but, the value of teamwork. Yeah, the, the value of teamwork. But ultimately, it's about being able to go and hang out with your friends. That's, that is the value of children's sports. So when I see coaches and dads and people like that getting so worked up about it, those are the fucking people I want to beat, right? Because I'm like, you're doing it wrong, right? You're doing the side missions in life, but like you're fucking hammering those side missions. Or or, or you think that the side mission is the main mission and you've got it all wrong. You're they're, grinding something they're totally not, off. They're not winning forever. No, definitely not winning forever. I mean, it was the same thing we went and played a baseball game in Mercer Island and this coach dad or whatever is like screaming at the kids and I'm like, dog. You need to cool off right now. I'm sorry, but your child, best case scenario, we walked through this a week ago. Best case scenario, your child is playing minor league baseball. Just calm the fuck down, right? And that that right there, median case scenario, your child is going to be you in 30 years screaming at his child, you know, working some totally different job, probably successful because of privilege because they live in Mercer Island. But, but... To see that coach be so upset and the players on that team, I think this was their first loss of the year, against our team who's out there dishing the rock around, I was like, wow, we're playing fucking basketball now, people. Let's fucking go! <laughs> it, well, was the, it was actually the first time that I would say that I have enjoyed coaching youth sports. Wow. Yeah. Because it wasn't like... Even though you're like a moth to a flame, this was the first time you've enjoyed Every other time it is 100% stress. This time I was like, these kids are actually learning how to play. Like there is a marked difference in how we played the previous week to this week. We had a very intense practice. And I was like, I, I, there were still some things in the first quarter that we did wrong. But I was like, we were doing three on two drills. And I was like, there are three of you and two defenders. You can get a layup every single play. And if you don't get a layup, you're doing something wrong. And I was like, that's basically what we're doing. When we play, like space it out, give yourself a little bit of room, create advantages to the hoop. That's it. Get to the hoop. Do not shoot jump shots. In the first quarter, there were a couple of threes taken. We're going to address that in practice. Tell the truth. Monday is going to be, it's going to be very harsh against the kids who are shooting threes because I'm just like, I don't even know if they give you three points. If you hit a three, I have not, again, I have not studied the league rules very much or at all. But I'm skeptical whether you're even going to get one extra point by hitting a three. But I do know that you're not going to have that shot go in. I feel like after the trade deadline, you're going to need to send me the league rules. Reading the rules and understanding them, that's usually my role among the fabulous Pelton brothers. I want, you, I want you to come to next week's game, see these kids fucking hoop. It's, I think it's opposite that you'd have game. Oh, I'm, I'm not going to be there. That's the other thing. Oh. Is I'm going to be in L.A. this week, so we're going to really find out if coaching matters. I guess we are. <sighs> Who's coaching I, the team? Uh, one of the other parents. Okay. Watch him scream at the kids the entire game. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! But no, I was like, I I really I really enjoyed it because seeing seeing the other person who cared so much being frustrated, but also just like 
are kids making passes? Like I felt like Pete Carroll on the sideline when, when Rashad Penny has a long run. There was like my long three weeks of work has finally paid off. At any point. My long three weeks of one hour per week. At any point, did you march up and down the sidelines looking like Pete Carroll with the uh, Mr. Peanut glasses? No, it is against the rules to stand I know, up. I know. <laughs> Standing is strictly <laughs> prohibited. Oh. Anyway, I, I was so, so happy about it. There was also a situation where a kid... So the Peyton had to leave for the fourth quarter, right? And you can understand how devastating that is. Again, something that most NBA coaches do <laughs> not pass. <laughs> Peyton had a prior engagement. <laughs> player has something else scheduled during the fourth <laughs> quarter. <laughs> so he, he had to leave. I, I was a little bit stressed there for the fourth quarter. And uh, let's see, we've got... Uh, I'm guessing that was the Hawks that we played. We've got the Celtics, the Hawks, the Cavs, and the Knicks. I'm the Cavs. <laughs> I'm literally fighting it. What week was that? February 5th? We were playing the Hawks. Yeah, I thought that was the Hawks. So next week we've got the the Knicks, who I think we played week one. Okay. Yeah, that, that was the team. that. There's no Bulls. I'm looking at the schedule right now. You're making up the Bulls. Well, they were wrong. They just named an Eastern Conference team. <laughs> uh, but we're going to be playing the team that we played in, in week one. You know, the same satisfaction that you felt watching your team pass. Where are you feeling about Baby Fantasy Genius not going to bed and instead <laughs> coming to interrupt the podcast? <laughs> as long as he's dishing the rock, I don't care. I, I get that it would be uh, hard not to listen to this no, story he had, about your No, he had that pass. Skin. He dropped it off to Landon. Landon made a shot, and I was like, that's fun! basketball people I, I was getting hyped could you hear me yelling that I definitely yelled now we're playing basketball I was like fucking uh, uh, Whoopi and Eddie out there right <laughs> like I was excited oh boy <sighs> anyway th so this is really a story remarkably, about how, how I for the first time enjoyed youth sports well remarkably the second reference to the movie Eddie that I've seen to, uh, seen or heard today wow that came up on the Windhorse podcast no not a podcast I saw it on a, on a discord somewhere uh anything else on Coach's Corner <laughs> you're legitimately thinking whether there's anything I, else I think that was it we got a quick food update this week okay Number one I want to talk about, I posted this on both Twitter and Instagram, but I had the Pagliacci seasonals yesterday Oh, those look good. before the uh, UW men's basketball game. And so the Amatrachana we'd had last year, or I had at least had last year. So I knew knew kind of what to expect there. That's like pancetta uh, and very good. But the Sicilian cauliflower either was new or I hadn't tried it last time. And I was a little skeptical because cauliflower on a pizza oh i would not be skeptical it doesn't doesn't seem right but let me tell you that was outstanding really the breadcrumbs on there there was some parmesan on top it made a delicious crunch uh cauliflower was like well cooked and it actually had like a little bit of kick to it All which right. was surprising so i'm gonna recommend you you find a way to check that out uh before those seasonal turnover in a couple weeks here all right uh also wanted to mention some chicken news oh since that's a key key component of this podcast is chicken news, uh, particularly relevant to me and the West Seattle listener, uh, talking Taco Time co-host Randy Cote brought this to attention because he texted me earlier 
what a time to be alive. Wow. And that's because the Azels in West Seattle is finally open in uh. the Thriftway parking lot after taunting us for a long period of time with, uh, you know, I was there last week and there were employees inside. Clearly they were almost ready to open, but they weren't quite open. And now they are finally open. We have Azels in West Seattle. Now, you know my rule about Azels, that usually the quality is inversely proportional to how far you are away from the home base. Uh, across the street from Garfield on 23rd there. so Is that your rule? I don't think I was aware of this rule. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's my rule of thumb with with Azels. Okay. So we'll see. West Seattle is pretty far away from there. I don't think it's actually a franchised location from what I can tell, though. So hopefully it'll be good. I'll have to check it out for uh, an official Pelton Guest review. But uh, definitely good to have an Azelles option on the island for those of us in West Seattle. On the island, God, that's what that's what people call it. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. With that, let's come, tr- come over to Renton basketball and see some real culture. <laughs> <laughs> let's yeah, the, honestly, the home of Zach Levine. That's where I'm coaching. That's true. Let's turn around. I can't say the same about every single child in this Renton Basketball League. One of them may be Zach Levine or DeJounte Murray. Can't, re- can't be ruled out. Uh, let's turn our attention to Seattle sports, and we're going to start by checking in on the Kraken. We've reached the NHL All-Star break, and I figured that would be a great time for us to check back in and see how this season is going and what we can expect the rest of the way with our original Kraken correspondent. So please welcome back to the pod, Ryan S. Clark of The Athletic. How's it going, my friend? It's going well, going well. I, what's this season been like? It's obviously, you've covered teams, but an expansion team this first year, what, what, how's it gone so far? I mean, it's been interesting for all the reasons that you would expect in a sense of like, no one really knew what to make of what they would be starting off. I mean, the projection said, hey, this could be a team that <clears throat> was finished like either at or above 90 yep. points, depending upon if you look at what Vegas odds had or like our own Dom Lushizen, who had, I believe, is like finishing with upwards of like 92, 93 points. And then, well, everything just kind of fell apart. And yep. yes, you could point to different things, but the reality was, I'm sure you remember it, but for people who don't, College um, football final, like in the mid-2000s, had a segment called ACC Wheel of Destiny because the ACC was so unpredictable to where it's like, of course, one in seven ways just be eight and two Clemson because why not? And that's what the Kraken were. It was Wheel of Destiny where you knew it was going to be a problem, but just what problem was it going to be? Was it goaltending, not enough goals, um, inconsistent five a man defensive player? Was it something else altogether different? Like, hey, they're doing everything well, but they're just playing a team that has more depth and there's only so much a team can do. Whereas if you look at how they've been playing recently, and this is sort of the bizarre part, it's among the most consistent they've looked. They've won five of their last nine, but even in three of those four losses, they were close games, much like what you saw against the Bruins. Philip Grubauer gets the first shutout uh, not only his season, but franchise history, but it still comes with the fact that you go into the break around what 16 points because it was 18 before they won against the Islanders, but 16 points out of the wild card. And so now you're looking at this team going, What's next? And as Ron Francis indicated when we talked to him the other day, what's next is it's looking towards the future. 
Yeah, I mean, very quickly, sort of, I think the expectations had to be recalibrated from, you know, thinking that a playoff one run was pretty realistic at the start of the season and, you know, a strong, pretty strong first road trip, I think all things considered. Uh, and then, you know, getting to that, all right, it's time to think about the future point. You look at this statistically, the team has probably been a little better than they've played. Their goal differential is not quite as poor as their points. And their Corsi is shockingly good. Although the sense I've seemed to have gotten from people who know hockey statistics is uh, that that probably overstates the quality of shots the Kraken are getting and what they're giving up. Is that that accurate? Yeah, no, I mean, some of it is that, but also like the thing about Corsi, another way to look at it is your shot attempt percentage. And like, well, yes, it measures shots. It's also a way of looking at possession. Mm-hmm. And so something that was kind of the big question about Philip Grubau, for example, is what is the difference between the defensive structure he has with the Kraken compared to what he's had the last few years with the Avalanche? And when you look at the Avalanche's Corsi shot at 10 percentage, whatever you want to label that term, the abs were always above 50%. Sometimes they'd get to the 60s. And anytime a team can be 52% or higher, it lets you know they're really controlling and dictating the game, which means like, well, yes, they're allowing shots on net. The chances are it's not exactly the most high quality of shots or <clears throat> the, the defense is not giving up a high barrage of shots. Whereas if here with the Kraken, at one point, they were just below league average and shot attempt percentage. And when you look at the losing streak, there were games when the opponent was owning the puck to the tune of 60%. And so if you're the Kraken, it doesn't matter the quality of shots. If you are somewhere in the low 40s or high 30s in that metric, it tells you just how much control you don't have. And it's one of those, like, you can get away with that if you're a team that can really capitalize on those chances. And as we've seen with the Kraken this year, like, they need at least a high percentage of chances in order to convert. Because when you look at other metrics like scoring chances per 60, if they're not last, they're within the bottom five. Now, yes, they're in the bottom five in terms of scoring chances allowed as well. So defensively, you have that. But as it relates to that overall metric, it's really about like, yes, it's the shots, but it's also about possession and what you can do with it. So it's a little bit more multi-layered. Do you think there's enough of a chemistry effect also in terms of Grubauer sort of knowing what was coming with that Colorado defense that, you know, he had played behind for a period of time that we can hope that we've seen in the stretch before the break four and two in his last six starts, stopping 91.5% of opponent shots in that span, according to hockeyreference.com, is a sustainable level of play for him as compared to what we saw the first couple months? Let's start with Colorado. The interesting thing there was he was in that system for three years. The first half of his first season, it took some time to find comfort. Second year, he had times when he looked consistent, but it was an injury-riddled season. Third year, I mean, he's someone who finishes as a Vesna Trophy finalist. But the thing with Colorado in each of those years is this. While the structure remained the same with a few adaptations here and there, it's the personnel where there was consistency. Now, you look at what the defense was from his first year to his final year in terms of the start of that full season. Eric Johnson's the only defenseman who was, who, who was on that roster. Because, like, you get Kale McCarr at the end of that first season for Grubauer. Oh, excuse me, Samuel Girard. So Samuel Girard, Eric Johnson, and Kale McCarr were the three guys who were there at the end of Philip Grubauer's first season. But then when you think about the fact that they added Devontae's, you know, a few a little bit down the road, 
Ryan Graves is someone who, like, he was on that team, but he was going back and forth between the AHL. But then that next year, he turns into, like, a full-time player that can be trusted in a top-four role. Like, there was a continuity that was built. Whereas if you look at the Kraken this year, like, yes, you've had the same cast of characters, but there was a point in time someone like Carson Soucy wasn't playing and wasn't getting a lot of minutes. Now, you could argue it's Carson Soucy, their most valuable defenseman. He leads them in goals. He eats up time on the penalty kill. With Jamie Alexiak being out like he is, your six foot five, big bodied physical presence who can do a lot of things for you. And so whether you're seeing more consistency from someone like Carson Soucy, the fact that you're getting more rotations in with seeing uh, Hayden Fleury get minutes, of course we see Kale Fleury get minutes as well. Will Borgens playing more, Mark Giordano and Vince Dunn are, are doing their thing. But another player to look at is, Adam Larson has been an absolute horse for them in terms of eating minutes, but these last two weeks, he has done some things on both ends of the ice that have really made a difference. And so that's just it. It's like, yes, it's about finding continuity and consistency, not only with the group in front of him, but with Grubauer himself. Yeah. All right. Well, like Francis, let's turn our attention to the future as we point towards the trade deadline, which is unusual in hockey because it's not actually technically a deadline, right? It's like the baseball September 1st where it's the postseason eligibility, but in practice, everyone completes their trades by that point. Am I understanding that correctly? I, I mean, it's one of those, you make trades, but it's like there's also the waiver wire. So like it's one of those like sort of strange things where if you waive someone, sure, but usually it's that's kind of a hard, fast date. Okay. Mark Giordano seems like the most logical trade candidate given, you know, obviously his age, the fact that he's in the final year of his contract and the expected value that he would have to a contending team coming in there is an experienced defenseman. Uh, Ron Francis said in that article that you wrote this week that, you know, he wants to sit down face to face with Giordano. Do you expect that's going to result in him getting traded? It's hard to say. Because if you're Mark Giordano, you are 38 years old. You have a legitimate chance at a Stanley Cup, depending on who the contender could be. But at the same time, you can also understand his reasoning for wanting to stay given his leadership role. But the fact they're having that conversation, let's play out the hypothetical that you trade Mark Giordano. It is something that could really help the Kraken in a few ways. The first is, He's already a UFA, and you were going to potentially get that money off the books unless you were to re-sign and probably it's at a lower rate than what he was making. But getting that money off the books is one thing. But again, this is a team that's already going to have a ton of salary cap, more than $27 million in space. When you look at what the Kraken have in the NHL draft right now, it is eight draft picks. You usually get seven. The extra one, of course, being a fourth rounder they got from the Calgary Flames. Moving on from Mark Giordano is the sort of move that allows them to get draft capital, maybe second or a third rounder. Who's to say what the price will be? But depending on where they trade him, this is where they could also get creative. So we saw this last trade deadline where there were contenders that were up against the cap and they had to be smart. So they started saying to teams, let's do a three-way deal where you trade us the player with the idea we bring in a third party that's out of contention, but has plenty of cap space. And we will buy cap space in the form of draft capital with IE picks or prospects or whatever the case might be, whatever to entice that deal. The Kraken have plenty of space. So if they needed to eat salary, they could, 
but they could charge a premium. And considering Giordano's cap, it is over $6 million, which is a lot of money, especially when you look at what the economics of the league have been with the flat cap. It is a chance for them to possibly maybe get a little bit more draft capital or even prospects to add to a system that right now, they only have eight prospects. And just to give you uh, an idea, there are some teams that have between four and five times that much right now. Are you it already anticipated my next question, which is how they could weaponize their cap space. And that's, that's great to know because it's such a fascinating quirk of the way the hockey salary cap works. I kind of wish it, the NBA cap was more like this, where you could retain a percentage of the salary. You know, sending it to a third team is really wild and fascinating to me, but, but, you know, a situation like in the NBA, uh, I may be going too far afield for the Pelton cast listeners. Gary Harris makes 20 million. I was looking at him in the mock trade deadline that we do with dunked on NBA podcast. And it's like, I'd love to get Gary Harris, but 20.2 million is a lot. You know, even if you're sending back an expiring contract in return, you're looking at potentially adding to your tax bill. But if you could buy that down to like 5 million, all of a sudden his value is huge around the league. So it's awesome. I think it adds flexibility that you can do that in hockey. No, I mean, you absolutely can. And it's one of those things where you saw teams like the Lightning and, and the Toronto Maple Leafs pull that off. And so you would think that this year, it's going to be the same because when you look at how much projected cap space a lot of your contenders have, there are quite a few of them that are literally out of money. But again, you can make that work if you can have a trade partner that is willing to eat that cost. And plus, teams that are at that point <clears throat> that would be willing to trade for Mark Giordano, they understand they're going to have to give up something, and usually that's part of their future. <laughs> and not only that, excuse me, but teams that are in the Kraken situation, I mean, there's two things that they definitely want. One is draft capital. Number two is prospects. Because again, if you can get a prospect, someone that you think can jump into your lineup, that's another young player, which there's that component. But also you're talking about someone who's going to be on a cheap contract. And when you look at the way the NHL is working, finding ways to get talent out of guys on cheap deals, it is something that every team wants to do. Because like, It's a three-year buffer that, yes, prepares you for when the contract comes, but it's like, how much can you take advantage? Like, let's take the New York Rangers, for example. Like, they've been able to afford Artemi Panarin and his salary. They were able to pay Mika Zibanejad that money, Chris Kreider and the like, because, like, a lot of their players are guys who don't have a lot of high figures. They're still on entry-level terms or cheaper deals which is what makes their window even more interesting because while they're young enough in a lot of different areas, there's going to be some players that three years from now, if they tried to afford, they couldn't afford. And so that's where like, if you're a team like the Kraken and your long-term goal to get better, if you can find more guys like that and build around them and have them be good, it allows you to go in any direction you really want. This is uh, maybe a, a too technical question. How far out can you trade draft picks in the NHL? Could the Kraken be looking to acquire picks beyond the 2022 draft? Is oh, absolutely. I mean, if they, if they wanted to, they could make trades for 2023, 2024. But again, because like, and this isn't a technical question. It's just trying to figure out what's the best way to answer this without going too nebulous into mm-hmm. it. So the strategy behind it is teams know two years in advance, in some cases three, what is coming down the pipe when it comes to prospects? So the issue is last year, so actually let's start from the beginning. So in a regular setting where there is no COVID, 
let's say you go watch the Everett Silvertips. So Everett has players that they're not draft eligible. They're younger, but you're getting views on the young kids. So that way you get a chance to get a feel for what they could be. So when it comes to their draft eligible year, you've seen the growth, you've seen the progress, and you know what's coming. Whereas if because of the pandemic, there weren't a lot of live viewings depending upon the junior league. This year, you're getting more live viewings, but there's still that whole idea that, like, again, pre-COVID, let's say I'm a scout, you're a prospect. After a game, I could go down, shake your hand, talk to you, get a feel, and I could also talk to other people around you in person and see and, and, and get a feel for these things. Now, everything is through Zoom. It's through questionnaire. And then when you get to the combine, like, you get more time with a kid, but again, like, that works when you're talking about first-rounders. Rounds two through seven, it's a bit more of a complicated thing. So that's a long way of saying I apologize. Like, yes, you can trade for the future because scouts and teams are studying what's going on later down the road. But this time around, it's a little bit more complicated just because while they've been able to get the live viewings, it's not the volume that they were able to get in previous years. All right, besides Giordano, is there anyone else we should be thinking of leading up to the trade deadline with the Kraken? The two names that keep coming up are Marcus Johansson and Kelly Crook, and it's because they are both UFAs. They're UFAs that are also top nine forwards that you can move up and down the lineup, more in your middle six than anything, and you can use them in the bottom six. But they're two-way players, and what that means is like they are players that you can trust in offensive and defensive situations. You can use them on your penalty kill. If you need a body on a second-team power play unit, you can use them as well. But also they're both players that, A, have cheap cap hits, and especially Johansson, and B, they're coming off your books anyways next year. So those would be two players probably to look out for. Are those more later round picks or middle round? Potentially. So players like that, potentially rounds five through seven, maybe six through seven. But again, like it's still draft capital. And so, yes, we Mm -hmm. think about the later rounds, and those are clearly the harder ones to get. But at the same time, you think about what comes from the fifth and sixth round, like, Mark Stone is an all-star and the captain of the Vegas Golden Knights. He is a sixth-round pick that went from like being this always physically hulking, massive player who just the skating was a question, to now you look at Mark Stone and it's like if you were trying to create what does a modern-day two-way forward look like, it is Mark Stone. That is what everyone wants to try to get. So there is value in the sixth round, but also keep this in mind. What do Sergei Bobrovsky, Mark Giordano, and Artemi Panarin all have in common? Well, I'm going to guess because I know this about Giordano, that they were undrafted. Exactly. There we go. And so a couple years ago, 25% of the league was undrafted free agents. So there is talent everywhere. So that's what makes the later rounds so critical. Yeah. Uh, As we look past the deadline, if the, the Kraken do make moves like this involving their veterans, are there some younger players who could stand to benefit with more playing time down the stretch? So let's say you end up moving Yarn Kroc and Johansson. It's possible that someone like a Morgan Geeky maybe gets more time on those special team units. But at this point with someone like Geeky, they've played him in different roles. And like at this point, it's really just more about how does a guy like that continue to adjust to the NHL? Because like, yes, you think about the fact that he's 23. And at this point, it seems like first rounders who are 23 years old or players who are 23, a lot of them do have playing experience by this point. Whereas with Morgan Geeky, he's a third-round pick. He's someone who got 
nearly 40 NHL games last year at the Carolina Hurricanes, but it was an up-down season between the taxi squad and, and the NHL, whereas at this year he's been consistently playing NHL games and getting adjusted to that. So he's someone that could possibly benefit more from it. But then when you look at players that they could bring up, that's just it. So with their NHL farm system, they are sharing a, a team with the Florida Panthers, the Charlotte Checkers. So the Kraken have between eight and 12 spots that they can use. And they want to use those spots mainly for guys like Joey Decord, like uh, Kale Fleury, players that they need to call them up. They can do it. Whereas if they're younger players, aside from Luke Henman, because he's too old to play juniors, they want those guys in juniors in college because that way they can continue to develop. So it would be right now the young guys who are on the team or maybe a Joey Decord, who would probably be those young guys that could benefit from more playing time. Well, speaking of guys who are continuing to develop in college, let's talk about the uh, the Kraken's first draft pick, Matty Beniers, who is going to be in the spotlight in the next few weeks here playing in the Olympics for Team USA. It seems like his development has been everything you'd sort of hoped it would be as the Kraken this season at Michigan into you know a, another level of star at the collegiate level. What has, what has he done so far this season? What can we expect from him in the Olympics? And when might we see him in Seattle? In terms of what he's done, you have seen a refinement with his scoring. And that's something that if you're the Kraken, you knew that was going to happen, but you still wanted to see it anyways. And so what you've seen from him is a refinement in scoring. He's continually been the two-way player. You look at the motor that they raved about in the sense of someone who's willing to play a 200-foot game. Like, all he's done is really just been able to harness and build upon it and become the sort of threat that every time he's on the ice, something is going to happen. Either he is going to score, create for others, or when you're in Michigan's defensive zone, he is someone that is going to be active with the way he operates within that structure. As far as the second part in terms of what you – because your second question was, when would the Kraken see him, or what was the second question? I well, the, what to expect for the Olympics? I, I threw three so in, in there. Terms of the, so in terms of the Olympics, like <laughs> this is interesting because we had a national story where I had a chance to speak with Ryan Donato and Jordan Greenway about what's it like being a college player at the Olympics. And they said, well, Jordan Greenway said, it's like college on steroids. And Ryan Donato talked about how, like, when you're playing against grown, older, more physically mature competition – you have to account for that, but it's also the quickness of it. But then when you get back to the collegiate game, you are thinking and operating at a much faster pace than anyone else. And that only helps with the development. Now, as far as the third part of the question of when he comes here, this is where it's a kind of a complicated thing. He can sign after his sophomore year. So usually players like Beniers who go in the top 10 they only do two years of college max. They really don't go back for a third year. And the Kraken are on record. Troy Bodie, who's basically a person who oversees player development, has said on record in a story we had, Matty Beniers could be in the NHL right now. But we didn't want him to be a player in the NHL. We want to put him in a position to succeed, which is why they were happy that everyone was on board with him going back for a second season in Michigan. So the way it works is they could sign him this year. And they could then bring, and then they could then have his ELC, his entry level contract, start next year. But here's here's why, and this is something Kale McCarr did. So when the Avalanche 
got in the playoffs. Kale McCarr wins the Hobie, loses in the national title game. He signs his entry-level contract, and they put him into the lineup right away in a playoff series because they're like, we think this guy can contribute. And alas, he did. But here was the thing about doing that. The second you play in the NHL, you have burned the first year of that entry-level contract. You have. Whereas if with the Kraken, there is no need to burn Matt, Matty Beneers' ELC on what will amount to eight, nine, ten games. So what you can do is you can sign him, and now I'm getting super technical, so I apologize. What you can do is you could sign him to basically an amateur tryout so he could go play in the AHL where he has a contract there, and then that does not affect his actual ELC. So that way when training camp starts next year, he's on the clock for the first year of that ELC, and you get the full length and life of that three-year ELC as opposed to you're burning it just so he can play a game, just so you can say you saw him at the pro level. Because that's the other thing, too, is just you have to be mindful about these things because you have to look at when contracts come due and all that. But the point is, it looks like that would be the route they would take. Look, if there's one thing the listener loves, it's some good service time manipulation, Doc. <laughs> good to know, good to know. We, we get it with like Julio Rodriguez, of, Jared Kelnick. It's, 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 it's one of those things where as writers, we write about this so much where you're like, you know, people care, but almost is it like too much. And when we did the story about Kale McCarr and like coming out of UMass as like, here are his options. Like people lost their minds and they were like, thank you for doing this because like, these are all the things that we had been wondering. And so with Maddie Veneers, it's the same thing. Like you could play him. You could have people say, I saw him at climate pledge. But then you're burning a contract for a team that's in a season that unless they go on some magical run and they get in playoff position, it wouldn't benefit the Kraken to do that. Yeah, all makes sense. Uh, Last thing I wanted to sort of look forward to is NHL draft lottery and how important positioning is going to be for the Kraken going into that. So the way it works is essentially if you finish – and the bottom three of the league, your odds are in double digits. Like it's believe if you have the worst record, it's like 18 and a half percent, then like 14 and then 12 and a half. And so if you're the Kraken, if you could finish in the bottom three, that's going to help your odds for getting the number one pick. As for what they would do with that position, it's interesting because our Corey Pronman talking to him, he has kind of kept this out all year that Shane Wright is going to be the number one pick. Is it a year where you think there's a strong consensus number one pick? Not necessarily, because Chris Peters, who does stuff for Daily Faceoff, said, hey, for him, his number one this year is Logan Cooley, the national team development program. So again, it all depends on who you ask. But the point is this whomever the Kraken end up drafting, is going to be a player that it looks like they're going to spend one more year developing and then maybe they come up the next year. So similar to what we've seen with Maddie Veneers. But in terms of like if they were to get the first pick, Shane Wright is the name that keeps coming up. And of course, because everyone is creative, there's a hashtag. Shane for Shane is, is a popular one. <laughs> Personally, I like the one. Personally, I like the one wrong for right. Uh, but if, but but like if uh, 
Cooley is the first pick. The one I ended up joking with Chris, what was it? It was just like cruising for Cooley or something like that, or like <laughs> what, like whatever the case may be. Um, but the, but the point is this: cool off for Cooley. That's a good one. That's a good because there was someone I there was something I had the other day that I was like, oh yeah, this is funny. And now that I'm on a podcast, I can't remember. So great job, failing on the big stage. No, but to be serious, like this is where it's at with the draft. And so that's why, like, if you're the Kraken or any team in this position, you know that building through the draft is what's going to allow you to be successful. Because you look at the teams that are at top of the standings. We mentioned a couple of them: Colorado, the New York Rangers, and another one, the Florida Panthers. They're all chasing the Tampa Bay Lightning. And the thing those four teams have in common is, well, yes, they were able to add pieces. The core of what they do is built from internally for the most part. And that's why, like, when you look at Tampa, Steven Stamkos, Nikita Kucherov, Victor Hedman, Braden Point, and Andre Vasilevsky, if you could draft two of those guys, you're happy as an organization. Three, you're over the moon. Five, well, it's why you've won two Stanley Cups and maybe a third. And like to have five cornerstone pieces, it's almost unheard of because that's how hard drafting is. And not only that, but going back to what we were talking about earlier with players on cheaper contracts, when you're able to keep guys and build from within and you develop continuity, A, it allows you to work with the numbers a little bit more to where if you can build this, maybe you can get a guy to sign at a cheaper term. B, when you're able to build together it allows younger players in your system to see what you're doing and see, it goes back to something Philip Grubauer said when he was a member of the Washington cast, he said, when I played in Washington, there's a generation of guys that all grew up together and made it to the NHL. Then another, then another, then another. So by the time all of you reach the NHL, you understand the expectations. And when you look at the Washington capitals, that's one of the reasons they're able to contend. Well, that and having a hall of fame left winger and a hall of fame center. That that helps. (laughs) I mean, in line with that, have you seen sort of from Kraken fans a patience and an understanding that, look, this is obviously not going to be a Vegas Golden Knights situation at this point, you know, with that sort of instant success, but it's going to take some time, but they're building slowly and building the right way to build something sustainable here in Seattle. It all depends on who you ask, because it seems like, Kevin, there's maybe three schools of thought with the Kraken. The first is the fan that you just under, you just explained, like the one who understands that this is going to take time. And then it seems like there's the second fan that either understood it was going to take time, but maybe wasn't expecting this, or says whether this is going to be Vegas 2.0 or not, this is not what we were expecting, and they are frustrated about it. And they're starting to now say, okay, let's look toward the future, because that's something we see in the comments section all the time at the athletic that like the, the crowd that went from excited went to anger has now kind of started to transition towards like they're going to okay the we, like yeah like yeah like you know what the problems are but at the same and while they've become better you also aware of like okay what's going on in the farm system what could they get at the deadline what's available in the draft and what's available in free agency and then there's like a third school of thought and this is something that you see more at the arena that like it seems like they don't care. They just want to go to a game. Yeah. <laughs> because like, that's something people have been wondering, like, okay, so if they start losing, how is this going to affect them? And so technically speaking, every night's a sellout because again, like it's going to be, it's the new thing in town, but have there been nights where you're like, okay, this is more than what you expect. Absolutely. But have there been some nights when 
from where we sit on press row, you look out and you're like, oh, okay, like you can see a few empty spots here and there, but nothing too major. But then when you look down and you see like there's more empty seats, it's just kind of like, oh, okay. So, but at least the thing is, at least if you're like you're still getting 14 grand. So it's not like people aren't going to games. It's just it's fluctuated since like that opening week, which again, yeah. it's expected. And also with Omicron, it's been a, you know, an interesting time for attendance in sports all over the oh, place. Absolutely. To that, to that last point, the first game I attended was the Colorado game back in November, where they went up six nothing. Yeah, the Avs went up six nothing yeah. because the quote that said it all, I believe, I believe it was like Everly or Grubauer who said like when they scored the first goal, yeah, people cheered as if like they just tied it or they just took the lead, and it was like for them, it's one of those like we can't continue to lose like this when this fan base like like wants to give a damn and support us. Like you can see like for those guys, it's and again, yes, we're being melodramatic, but it's always kind of like you let down that relative who like, they're like, no matter what, we always love you. And you're like, damn, why do I have to get caught like cheating on a test or like whatever teenage melodrama you're going through. But then I, I went to the, the Washington Capitals game that Sunday and saw the payoff of them winning that game and Grubauer citing post game, you know, the, the response to that goal. So it, I went through the whole emotional journey with the Kraken over that weekend. It was a lot of fun. No. And that, that's just it. It's like, it's, it's definitely been a journey and I guess we're getting a little bit off base here, but that's, what's been so fascinating about how they performed because a question people have asked nationally was like, so what is the landscape in Seattle? And like, is it one of those things where the second they started playing, this is all the city cared about. And it's like, hate to break this to you. There's this thing called the Mariners. And then there's this <laughs> thing called the playoffs. They have not always been mutually exclusive. This year they were. It's a Seattle lost its mind over that. And then there's this other thing called the Seahawks. May have heard of them. Kind of, kind of not so much a big deal, but kind of a big deal. But to be serious, like, it's been explaining to everyone when the Mariner season was over, people were paying attention during camp, but then their attention was split. Seahawks cracking. And if you like college football, of course, UW, Wazoo. And now it's one of those things where it's shifted towards like Seahawks season is over, but the cracking are at a point when it's like, okay, you're starting to look towards the future. UW basketball has struggled at, at times. Wazoo's had its issues. Gonzaga basketball, kind of good. Maybe not kind of good. Very good if you're a Gonzaga fan. That's yeah. it's probably a yeah, smaller they, they, contingent they, in Seattle. Yeah, they 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 might have a chance at you know winning more than their conference yeah. this year. Yeah. But <laughs> to be serious, like you have that, but yet it's the whole idea of like with Mariners and Major League Baseball being in a contract lockout, you just don't know what's going to happen. So it's one of those things where like if their record had been better yep. and they were in a playoff shape, like they could really own the city. Whereas if now the conversation has shifted more towards like with them, what's the future, the Seahawks, what's going on with their future with the Mariners, when are they going to start playing with UW? How are things going to work out with Kalen DeBoer in this recruiting class? Wazoo, the same thing with its coaching situation. And then with the Sounders, like what does this year look like for them? Yeah, very much. Oh, so. And of course, like with the storm, like, Hey, is this the last year of, uh, of, well, of, of Brianna and Bird, because it's like we all look at that and you're just kind of like, this was an off season just because I don't know. Well, <laughs> like, 
Will both of them be back? Will they not? We'll find out. Same bat time, same bat channel, which is usually Joe TV. Yeah, if you think there's uh, a lot of concern about the future at Climate Pledge Arena right now, it's going to be doubled come the summer months when the storm is occupied. Oh, good lord. Like, I mean, you've seen it when you've gone to a game. Because, like, they'll play this pre-roll of, like, celebrities. They'll be like, hey, everyone, this is Gary Payne. like, oh, okay. Hey, everyone, this is Seahawks legend Cliff Avery. Oh, okay. Hey, everyone, it's Ann Wilson from Heart. Oh, that's cool. Hey, everybody, this is super. Oh, my God. Like, people <laughs> lose their damn minds when they see Sue Bird. And it's just kind of like, yeah, like, is this it? Like, really and truly, like, is this it? I mean, the, the important thing for you to know, Ryan, is that by appearing on this podcast again, you've now been on twice more than Sue Bird. That is terrifying. <laughs> There's, there is no metric where I should double sue bird unless it's my 40 time um and even then it's probably going to be triple because she's sue bird um <clears throat> so yeah, she, I, yeah i will stop there <laughs> well you know besides everything else the kraken fans have going for them in terms of the excitement of this inaugural season they're getting great coverage from you at the athletic and it's been That's a lot debatable. of fun to read uh so definitely want to encourage everyone to check that out at also at Ryan underscore S underscore Clark on Twitter. Anyone where else we can find your work? Let's not do that to the people. We don't want to put them through that misery. Uh, no, really just the athletic uh, and yeah, on Twitter. So that's pretty much it because some of the things that we discussed here, that's what's going to continue to play out for this organization, whether it be the draft trade deadline, and another one, of course, is going to be free agency because we didn't really get a chance to get into it. But the long and short of it there, more than $27 million in cap space. And that's a large chunk of money. But the pool gets smaller depending on what happens with their RFA class. More specifically, Jared McCann and Ryan Donato. Jared McCann's on pace for his first, first ever 30-goal season. But the thing is, they only have one year left of team control. So you could qualify him and still hold on to him. But how much do you want to pay for those UFA dollars, which is where it gets more expensive? And it's the same thing with Ryan Donato. He's having a career season himself on pace to surpass what he's done before. But at the same time, it's like, well, it's a lesser figure compared to what McCann should get. It's still the idea that if you want to keep those two players beyond next year, you're going to have to pay, which, of course, changes the math on how much actual cap space they're really going to have once it hits free agency. Yeah, we'll have to uh, check in again with you at the end of the regular season, if not before then, and see how that uh, that's looking and and how the Kraken are projecting heading into the 22-22 offseason. Sounds like a plan. Thanks so much for doing this again. Of course. Thanks for having me. All right. Great stuff from Ryan. It was uh, terrific to have him back and uh, look forward to doing so again soon to uh, wrap up the Kraken season at some point. All right, beginning the roundup with the Sounders, who formally announced extensions for Javier Arriaga, Joao Paulo, and Raul Ruiz Diaz. We'd uh, mentioned those when they were reported a few weeks ago, but uh, nice to have those deals official and you know everyone basically under contract for an extended period here of this core that people are very excited about within MLS and the Sounders' chances of getting back to MLS Cup. Uh, one player who will not be in the mix for the Sounders at the start of this season is uh, midfielder Ethan Dobelair. Are you was... getting a text that Tobias Harris has been traded? No, no that, was a, that was a call from Jan. Okay, is Jan calling to tell you that Tobias Harris has been traded? <laughs> oh, that was sw- slightly before. 
episode. I guess it was 2019 that he was traded. It wasn't 2020. Jan was like, have you heard about Karis LeVert? <laughs> What's up with CJ? Uh, Ethan Double A loaned to MFK Vizkov of the Czech National Football League through the end of their season in May. So an opportunity for him to get some more playing time after my bold prediction did not come true of Double wow. A breaking into the first team squad on a regular my basis last year. My prediction about him being loaned to MFK Vizkov of the Czech <laughs> National League actually came true. Very so specific. Yeah, yeah that's like friggin' Nostra Tristan over here, wow. as far as I can tell. So Just specific. go back and check the tapes, 200 to 300. Uh, <laughs> it, I have a question for you about this, though, which you're not going to be able to answer. How in the world did the Seattle Sounders and MFK Vizkov of the Czech National Football League manage to find each other in a crazy <laughs> world to execute this loan? It's a good question. I would like an oral history of the Ethan Double A loan. I don't know if like his agent is somehow involved in like finding a place for him to play. I always wonder about that. Like some like soccer is just the leagues are so vast around the world, and these transactions that happen, it's just like. Of all places, how they could have found, they could have been like, yeah, Ethan Dovalier is what we're looking for. They're just over there in the Czech Republic playing playing soccer and whatever. Is this the first league? of? I would assume so. I didn't actually double check that. Didn't do that there much are so many soccer teams throughout the world. So many. And, and this is one that Ethan Dovalier managed to have found his way onto. Of all the soccer teams in the world, oh, the second level of Czech so football. So he's in the second level of Czech soccer. Yeah, like that is it is <laughs> wild that this transaction happened. It is. I agree. I I have nothing to add here. For me, the idea of scouting leagues outside of like the big four leagues in FIFA is too exhausting. Having to take the time to take a scout and send them to the United States to scout in FIFA. That is too much work for me. And somehow in this crazy world that we live in, in the middle of a pandemic, Ethan Dobelair is going to MFK Vishkov of the Czech National Football League. You probably remember them as SK Rostock Vishkov, which they changed their name on 1st January 2012. Wow, so that that kind of you should have explained. told me that this was the former SK Vishkov. Vizkov. What did you say it was? SK Rustek Vizkov. SK Rustek Vizkov. You didn't tell me that that I was what his name yeah. was. Oh, okay. So the, the picture becomes a little bit clearer. <laughs> that explains it all. Uh, some big news from OL Rain is uh, Bill and Teresa Predmore, who co-founded the Rain, are stepping back from their operational roles as part of the transition to Olympic Lyon ownership uh, from the sale two years ago. Bill Predmore will be replaced as CEO by Vincent Bertelot, who had been chief operating officer for the last couple of seasons since the sale, sort of learning the NWSL and the uh, the American landscape. In a statement, Bill Predmore said this was part of a planned transmission transition since the sale, although that timeline hadn't previously been made public. The Predmores will retain a minority share in club ownership. And with the transition, according to Sounder at Heart, the team will hire a GM for the first time. Uh, we got learned a little bit of the Reigns schedule for the NWSL Challenge Cup. They'll open the season at Lumen Field against the rival Portland Thorns on Friday, March 18th. We'll also host expansion sides San Diego and Angel City FC in the Challenge Cup in mid-April as part of the West region. Play those same three regional rivals on the road, wrapping up April 23rd. The three group winners from the different regions and the top-ranked second-place team will advance to the semifinals in the third annual NWSL Challenge Cup. 
Uh, we talked a lot about the Storms offseason last week. Their roster continued to take shape after we recorded that podcast as the conclusion of a busy week after officially inking newcomer Brian January and Brianna Stewart to their previously reported deals on Wednesday. The Storm pulled off a surprising trade on Thursday, sending starting small forward Katie Lou Samuelson in the number nine pick to Los Angeles for Gabby Williams. There are some broad similarities between Samuelson and Williams, who both played at UConn, where Williams overlapped for two years with Brianna Stewart to uh, Samuelson's one. They were both drafted number four overall by the Chicago Sky in consecutive wow. years, uh, then played together. Williams played 16 minutes per game in her second year to Samuelson's 7.7 as a rookie during their lone season together in Chicago. Uh, because she was set to spend most of last season playing for the French national team, the Sky placed Williams on the season suspension list in May, then subsequently traded her to Los Angeles for Stephanie Watts, the number 10 pick of the 2021 draft. The Sparks then signed Williams to a one-year contract extension kicking in this season that pays her $144,000, about double Samuelson's $72,000 salary in the final year of her rookie contract. They'll both be restricted free agents next season. Uh, <laughs> from a value standpoint, it seems not great that the Sparks gave up the number 10 pick last year. The Storm gave up the number 9 pick this year, plus Katie Lou Samuelson, who they had traded the number 1 pick last year to get. So from that that standpoint, it's a little confusing. I assume a lot of their logic is that this move strengthens their perimeter defense. Williams was the WBCA Defensive Player of the Year as a junior at UConn, last year's EuroLeague Defensive Player of the Year. But it's at the expense of shooting, as Williams has shot just 25% from three in her WNBA career, while Samuelson hit a career-high 35% last season. As an NBA comparison... My my comparison for Gabby Williams, because she also has some ability to play point guard, which it will be useful to the Storm. She, I've always thought of her as kind of a Justice Winslow type, which is amusing because the other team I cover, the Blazers, acquired the actual Justice Winslow in really? a trade last Friday. Days, one day apart, these two trades happened. Wow. Uh, I was going to say that's shocking, but this is just a comparison you have. That uh, doesn't actually mean anything. Um <laughs> But it, I mean, it, it, they're kind of... It's an interesting note for you. <laughs> they, they've got enough size, both of these players, to play power forward. They're good defenders, don't really shoot, can handle it a little bit, have played some point guard in their career. So it is an interesting comparison. Okay, I'm just going to say, you seem a little bit baffled by this trade. Let's say that you were somebody who does trade grades professionally. Let's say you were doing WNBA trade grades. You might be. Let, do you think there's a time that... Or do they just not even stick you on WNBA at all? Is there a no, I did several articles last week. I did one on the Storm, as uh, we mentioned on the pod. What the, A, they should start doing WNBA trade grades. Let me, let me talk to your editors. As I your would, agent, uh, let me talk to your I would editors. prefer not to do trade grades. It, I'm telling you right now, you want to boost the profile of the WNBA? Roasting trade grades. Oh no, we're already doing offseason grades. I'm I'm dreading what I'm gonna give this time. Oh no. Okay, let's let's hear your grade for this. I mean, they got. I don't know that they necessarily got the better player, and they gave up. They paid twice as much salary, and they gave up a first round pick. It's not a good grade. People want to hear the grade. It's south of a C for sure. Wow. Okay, how about this? Let me let me pitch to your editors as your agent again. You don't, you don't have to write the words. Just give it a grade. Give every transaction a grade. I think this was a D. Wow. Whew. What do you, so what do you think the logic is here then? Probably about the... Well, I think it's twofold. So number one, on Friday, the Storm did re-sign forward Stephanie Talbot, a restricted free agent, to her qualifying offer, a one-year deal for the veterans minimum that is not protected. Uh Talbot and Samuelson have broadly similar skill sets. Talbot's a better defender, 
she's not maybe quite the shot creator that Samuelson is, but that's a, that isn't a big need for the Storm. So I think part of their logic is probably what we got from Katie Lewis Samuelson last year, we can continue to get from Stephanie Talbot, whereas Gabby Williams brings us this different dimension with her defense and her ball handling. Okay. So I think that's what they're... And they do have the potential now... Like we mentioned, Breon January, all-defensive first team last year. They can put out a lineup with it's January, Jewel Lloyd, Gabby Williams at small forward, Brianna Stewart at power forward, Mercedes Russell at center. That's like one of the best defensive lineups in the league. Maybe the best defensive lineup in the league. Okay. So I think that's part of their thinking. But they're sacrificing some offense to get there. And, you know. How valuable is the number 10 pick in the draft? Not super valuable. I mean, it's someone you'd expect. It's number nine, but it's someone you'd expect to probably make the roster, but not necessarily. It's not a guarantee. Okay, so this is not like they gave up a... No, I mean, it's not. What are the valuable picks in the WNBA draft? One, two, and three? Depends on the draft, but, you know, there is a pretty rapid drop-off after the first handful. I mean, you can find players. Last year, the number six pick won Rookie of the Year. The year before that was a second-round pick won Rookie of the Year for the wow. Minnesota Lynx, Crystal Dangerfield. So there are surprises out there. But the average value, that, that player, Stephanie Watts, that they traded for, that they got for Gabby Williams in Chicago, mm-hmm. they cut her a few weeks later. So last year's draft was exceptionally weak. I don't, I, you named too many players for me to really know what's going on. But It's like when Ryan starts talking NHL players. Yeah. All right, so the uh, the the rest of this, uh, you know, if the Storm want to keep the 10 players they currently have under contract, including, you know, several whose contracts are not protected, those moves would le- have left them with about 86000 in remaining cap space to sign Sue Bird, who uh, reiterated last week to my ESPN colleague Michelle Vocal that she'll sign for whatever is left over. It's not a good negotiating tactic. As <laughs> Sue Bird's agent, I do not agree with that perspective. I think her agent's probably okay with it. This okay with it at this point because you know it's eighty six thousand is more than what none if she retired. retired. Yeah, but might take commission on her coaching salary, which, as we know, would be a lot more than her WNBA playing salary. I don't think she's planning to coach ever. Why did she do the time with the Nuggets then? That was in the front office. That wasn't coaching, oh, and also that was before she became super podcast superstar. Oh, where's her agent at? CA. She's negotiating uh, she's at, all that shit. She's at Wasserman. At Wasserman, whatever. Yes. yes. Whoever it is, they're 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 negotiating everything. Podcasts, front office, coaching, I, I plan. I agree. I'm just saying that all is going to be there. Okay. The 86000 is probably still a, a decent amount. And you know, the Storm could still increase that by waiving one of their players on non-protected contracts. Uh, Epiphany Prince is at 115000 so that would create the most flexibility if they did that. Now, after all these moves... The Storm withdrew their qualifying offer to restricted free agent Jordan Canada on Saturday. And Windsider's Rachel Galligan reported that she's headed home to play for the Los Angeles Sparks on a one-year deal. Oh, no. Busy day Saturday for the Sparks, who also utilized that cap space created by their trade with the Storm. And another with the Atlanta Dream, getting Kennedy Carter to uh, sign Liz Cambage as an unrestricted free agent. Number one free agent out there. She's going to be the best free agent who changes teams, yeah. I mean, obviously, Brianna Stewart doesn't count, but like... Right. And Junkwell Jones, reigning league MVP, also resigned. So, so the Storm made a trade that set the Sparks up to be able to sign Liz Cambage? I don't... I, I think... I'm not sure of the math. I don't know if they needed it to sign, be able to sign Liz Cambage. They couldn't have signed both Cambage and Canada without making the trade with the Storm. 
so the storm trade made a trade. <clears throat> Just so we're clear here. This is this is part of why it was a day. First, they didn't just the off season that's going on right now. They didn't core Brianna Stewart, which set and then cored another player. Who did they core? Joel. They core Joel Lloyd. Yeah. On two a two year deal, you which know, the meant more, that they cannot core Brianna Stewart for next year. Correct. But the more I think about that, the less I think that matters because one of the things I, I pointed this out on Twitter last week after the pod, if Brianna Stewart wants to make the Supermax next year. She'd have to get signed and traded to New York if she or wherever she wanted to go either way. So I don't know that the core designation actually changes things that much. How much is the difference between the Supermax and the Max? Uh, it's like 30000 It's not a huge It's just deal. like these numbers aren't big enough. As Brianna Stewart's agent, I'd be like, who cares? It's an extra $30,000. Like, what are you even... But the other thing you have to think about is like... Play where you want to play for $30,000. Brianna Stewart can find $30,000 somewhere. She can. The other thing I've thought about, but she's taking it this year. It's not like she's doing the Super and playing. She's but signed that, for That's fine. She should still... She's in her prime. She should be signing for the max amount. Right. But I'm just saying, it's not like... In the NBA, we're talking about tens to hundreds of millions, right? Yeah. Tens to twenties. It's a big, big difference, but these WNBA numbers aren't that big at this point. Thirty thousand dollars. I, I mean, it is potentially over multiple years, but yes. Uh, the other aspect that you need to think about is okay. So say they can core Brianna Stewart next year, is whatever they get in return from whoever they sign and trade her to better than Jewel Lloyd? No, you'd rather have Jewel Lloyd You're than saying those that players. If they core her, they would still have to sign and trade her. If she wants to go. Yeah. Okay. You're I saying mean, that they would, I, what they I'm would saying is, allow like, her to go if she wants to go. It's not going to be the difference between Brianna Stewart leaving or not. Okay. Whether they core her. If it's the WNBA. You always have the leverage of saying, I'm just not going to play this season. You're going to end up where you want to go. So. Same thing happens in the NBA, too. Uh, <laughs> not, not always. We'll find out by Thursday, I guess. The, so the, but the, oh, the next transactions that they made... Set their biggest rival, would you say? Or is Phoenix their biggest rival? I'd say Phoenix is their biggest rival. Close, though. Like, maybe Phoenix is their biggest rival because Phoenix has been successful. But the Sparks now set them up to sign Jordan Canada and Liz Cambage. Yes. And cool. it seems a pretty clear signal that the Storm did not value Jordan Canada very much. No, we haven't seen. She hasn't officially signed that contract. So we don't know what the dollar figure is. Ellie could offer her up to 140000 and if it's that kind of salary, like I totally understand why the summer are like, yeah, we're good. Uh, I think there also may be an element where they just liked the players who are currently at the end of their roster. Like they would have had to cut someone to re-sign Canada. They certainly like Stephanie Talbot better. I think they may like uh, Kiki Herbert Harrigan, who barely played last year because she gave birth. It's kind of losing a lot of like fan favorite type players in a row. Sammy Whitcomb's gone. Yeah. Jordan Canada's gone. Alicia Clark. But, I, you know, I think Breon January is going to be a fan favorite as is, is a Washington State native. Who? Breon January. Where did she go to school? Arizona State. I thought you were going to say Oregon. <laughs> oh, no. Much like this beer. <laughs> uh, and also, you know, Subert is the most important thing from that standpoint. And Brianna Stewart I'm just going to say right now, people better buckle up, though. We're going to have a lot of storm talk coming up. I hope so. This is this is the year that I'm getting into the storm. I'm bummed that they're actually doing an in-person press conference for Stewie resigning, but it's on Thursday, so alas, I can't go because of the trade deadline. Yeah. All right, you, it's time for our first. We had a brief update last week. 
UW softball update. Huskies open the season Thursday at the Puerto Vallarta College Challenge facing Lamar, Long Beach State, Arkansas, and Rutgers. Gabby Plain is back. There we go. To anchor the UW rotation, but uh, one big change with shortstop Sis Bates. No. Becoming a student assistant coach this season. So I'm not really sure who's going to play shortstop. I guess we'll find that out. Uh, Huskies open number seven in the ESPN.com slash USA softball top 25. Arkansas, number nine. Those teams will play twice to highlight this weekend's tournament. All right. So we're going to have a pretty good sense after this weekend of where they're sitting. If they were to sweep Arkansas, that's a huge deal. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see also, you know, last year they kind of struggled in some of these non-conference tournaments because they pitched pitchers who were not Gabby playing. Yeah, no more of that. <laughs> so the degree to which they have the depth to, to handle not Gabby playing starting will be interesting to say. This is it. Gabby playing needs to pitch every single I this don't. Year. I don't think that's a good strategy. But th- is this her senior year? Uh, this is this would be her last year. This is the national um, championship year for Gabby playing. Like, this is all in on the season. It's a big year. UW women's basketball still looking for their first win in Pac-12 play, despite... As I boldly predicted. <laughs> yes, yes. That's actually, that was, that's a great call. <laughs> despite 18 points from Missy Peterson and 15 from Lauren Schwartz, they lost a close game Thursday in Salt Lake City, 71-66 to Utah. They were within one with 139 left, but the Utes scored the final four points to keep the Huskies winless. Then blown out Sunday, 66-43 in Boulder, with UW transfer Quay Miller playing a key role for Colorado. Uh, Huskies back home this weekend hosting the 2-8 and eight USC Trojans, who have lost six in a row since beating UW at the Galen Center, representing their best chance thus far to get that elusive first Pac-12 win for Tina Langley. On Sunday, it's UCLA, who comes in 5-5 five and five in Pac-12 play, so a bit tougher test. On to UW men's basketball, who experienced in some ways uh, a similar weekend to when they visited the Oregon schools a couple weekends ago, with an impressive performance Thursday and a much less impressive performance on Sunday. Let's start with the uh, impressive win Thursday, 84-63 at Cal, their biggest win over a Pac-12 opponent since also beating Cal in February 2020, and their biggest against any opponent, period. Since December 2020 went over Seattle U. They had Seattle U is pretty good now, right? Seattle U is playing quite well in the WAC. Uh, they hadn't beat any team by more than 11 points since dis- since the start of 2021. That's how long it had been. Post-pandemic. No. The Seattle U game in December 2020 was... Okay, that was, was like deep pandemic. Yes. Okay. Uh, Huskies took command early with Cal missing their leading scorer. Andre Kelly never looked back as Dejon Davis shot five of seven on threes and Jamal Bay four of seven. Huskies shot 12 of 23 as a team. Uh, Davis and Bay, along with Terrell Brown Jr., all scored at least 19 points while no Cal player had more than 10. And I was thinking about you saying that UW just doesn't blow teams out. And seeing this game, it was kind of like, we we had these weeks of they've been playing very well in the Pac-12, or at least winning games. They've been winning a lot of games. And all of a sudden, we have a blowout now, and we're like, maybe we, maybe we is too strong of a board. At least I was like, not only have they been playing well, now we throw a blowout into the mix. All you need here, and this probably is true of every team, I suppose, if Dejan's going to shoot 5-7 for 3. But like, a couple of buckets, a couple of threes from the three-point shooters, hypothetically, 
And you've got a team who's maybe not competing for the Pac-12, but like the very, you know, number four in the Pac-12, five in the Pac-12, within the realm of reason. And then Sunday happened. Uh, well, they fell behind 15-2 at Stanford. They did answer with a 14-2 run, but uh, never got within single digits after halftime, trailed by as many as 28 before ending the game with the final 10 points to produce an 87-69 final margin. Uh, Cardinal shot 11 of 27 on threes to the Huskies, 6 of 22. I mean, 11 of 27 still not that good, right? They were really hot in the first half. They just got way up, and then it was over. I mean, they continued adding to the lead. That's how it got to 28. Uh, also exposed the UW zone on the inside. They made 58% of their twos. And the Huskies' offense was really just Terrell Brown Jr. Had 30 points and six assists and either scored or assisted on 19 of UW's 27 field goals. They also missed Dejon Davis in this game, who suffered a shoulder injury in the first half, did not return. So Do we have any really updates know. on Dejon? Not sure about his prognosis for this weekend, but... Uh, Certainly disconcerting, especially coming off that awesome performance in his return to Stanford. Prognosis. Previously started. Negative. Uh, I, I am telling you right now, there's one similarity between these two games and between the Oregon loss and the Stanford loss. And it's superficial, but it's real. It is playing games on Sundays. Well, they also got blown out at Colorado. Not quite as badly. But on they a Sunday? three on Sundays. In College play. basketball games should not be played on Sundays. The body is not ready to play <laughs> basketball on a Sunday, especially those it's were all on the road. They were all on the road, weren't it's they? It's not ready with the extra day of rest? They were They were all on the road. They were all on the Sunday road. Sunday is a day of rest. Have you <laughs> ever been – okay, imagine yourself, right, on a Sunday afternoon. You're chilling. You're cooling out. If somebody was like, hey, do you want to go play a college <laughs> basketball game right now? You'd be like, fuck, no, I don't. <laughs> yeah. Are you kidding me? I don't know if you're aware of this. If someone asked me if I wanted to go play a college basketball game on Saturday, it would be the You'd same You'd be answer. like, put me in, coach. I'm ready to play, right? Be like, on, I don't know if you've Saturday, seen my, how, how messed up my Achilles is at Saturday this is the college basketball day, and that's when these games should be happening. Sunday games, I bet you can look this up, massively favor the home team. That seems unlikely. Statistically I, speaking, Sunday games have massively... Uh, uh, Outside, the Huskies might even be swaying this on the, single-handedly on their own with these blowout losses. <laughs> There's three games they played. Point differential-wise, they do not fare well on Sundays. And that that they should not be playing these games. They should be playing on Saturday. Thursday, Saturday, that's how it should be played. Saturday, there's energy to it, right? You wake up, you're ready to go. You're like, it's Saturday. Sunday, you're worried about the week ahead. Are you familiar with the Sunday scaries? That's what the Huskies are feeling every time they play a game on the road, right? Think about that. Imagine imagine this. It's Sunday night. You have to play a basketball game and then travel home and think about school after that? I don't want to play either. I personally would shoot 0 of 7 for 3 or whatever. Can I give you an alternative explanation? So I don't far, know if I want to hear it. But so okay. far, impact twelve play. The Huskies own two against the two teams ahead of them. I guess the three teams. Well, they've played two teams that are ahead of them in the standings with blowout losses at Arizona on a Monday and that Sunday game at Oregon. Same rules. They're two and two <laughs> against Monday? The, the next two teams in the standings: Stanford <laughs> and Colorado, having won close games. One of those by two points. One of them in double overtime uh, against those two teams. Or no, I guess just. I, that Stanford game, I think, only went to one overtime. But lopsided road losses to both Stanford and Colorado, yes, on Sundays. And then they're 5-0 and against the teams in the bottom half 
of on, the Pac-12. They are 5-0 and on every Thursday and every Saturday. So here's the bad news. After playing Arizona State on conveniently Thursday, there we go. the Huskies will not play a team below them in the standings again until their season finale no when they host Oregon State, which includes rescheduled games announced earlier today on February 23rd at Washington State and February 28th against UCLA, who are two of the teams ahead of them in the Pac-12 standings. A Wednesday to Monday. Don't really have a take on those two. <laughs> you, you seemed down on Monday before. Uh, the Sun Devils snapped a four-game losing streak with a stunning upset of UCLA in Triple OT on Saturday, getting 24 points from senior Marion Jackson, leading six players in double figures. They held the Bruins to 43% two-point shooting was with that UCLA at home going, or on the road? It was at home. Saturday. Going 5 of 22. What? You said it was on Saturday, right? It was. That was on Sunday? They won at home. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> going 5 of 22 <laughs> beyond the arc. ASU then hung out in there for a half on Monday at Arizona before losing 91-79 earlier tonight. Uh, Arizona, who the Huskies will apparently beat because they're facing them on Saturday, but maybe not because they would have home court advantage if they played them on Sunday, so you'd want to play them on Sunday. That's a really good point. I don't really actually. follow the logic entirely. Be, I'm telling you, the energy is going to be so much better playing that game on the Saturday. I mean, there will be good energy for that game, I would imagine. Uh, Arizona has moved all the way up to number two in the Ken Palm rankings behind Gonzaga. Top two teams from the Western United States, remarkably. Wow. Uh, you see the Seahawks on Sundays? They looked like they were never ready to play football. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I, I also saw them on Thursday and Monday. Those didn't go too great. And Tuesday. None of those days went good. Oh, no. I guess Tuesday the body wasn't was made really to play bad. on Tuesday. Oh. Uh, I still honestly can't believe that that happened. I think mon- the Monday game was the worst. I mean, they were playing the Rams on Tuesday on the road. It's not like that was a game you would expect to win. That wasn't Washington football team. They were all the worst. <laughs> Tied. Uh, the Wildcats took care of both LA schools at home last weekend before beating ASU. They rank, entering Monday's game, they ranked 12th in the country in adjusted offensive efficiency per Ken Palm and 5th in defense so a championship formula uh briefly our usf f usf update san francisco got an impressive 73 59 win thursday at byu avenging a two-point home loss to the cougars in their first meeting and then on saturday needed an unorthodox strategy to win at portland they fouled up two in the closing seconds of that game a ken pomeroy favorite the pilots split the two free throws USF made both of theirs to win 74 How 71. much time was left? Like six seconds or like eight seconds, something like that. They were up by two points. So the logic is I worst, like it. worst case scenario, you have the ball for the last shot, either win or go to overtime. Best case scenario, they miss one of the free throws or both of the free throws, and then you have the ball with the lead, which this, is good. This is a college thing. Like in the I mean, NBA, you could you do could, it in the NBA, but too. But the free throw shooting is way too good. Exactly. It's, that's a big factor. In, in Europe, it's very common to foul up one in the closing seconds because you don't want to let the other team get the final shot. You want the final shot, even if you're behind. Because your fans will riot. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's it. So, uh, yeah, I'll see if I have to employ that in any games. Oh, yeah. yeah. You should definitely consider I, that. I, I, I can't even you, imagine telling the kids. I don't know which we don't, we literally do not know is. how to order ourselves for free throws. <laughs> That's the thing that we have not practiced a single time. Well, you maybe might want to work that into the practice. I'm practicing one hour a week. I'm trying to teach these kids how to play basketball. I don't have time to tell them how to order themselves for free throws. But maybe maybe I'll work on it this week. 
that is a luxury I'm not afforded. But I can just imagine yelling at them, being like, foul! Like, ten seconds left or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> They'd be like, what? What are you talking about? I don't know. I feel like kids know how to foul. They played pretty vicious the entire game. I don't think the refs would call it. It's very physical. Hand-checking? Totally allowed. Now, what is this? The NBA from 1999? It kind of is. Let's wrap up with the Seahawks. We've got news from the Seattle Times, with Clint, which reported that uh, Clint Hurt, defensive line coach, will be named Seahawks defensive coordinator with Ed Donatel set to join the staff in a role still to be determined. The Times also reported the Seahawks are still interested in hiring former Bears defensive coordinator Sean Desai, perhaps for their vacant role of pass game coordinator. Uh, maybe if not, Donatel could get that role. Uh, NFL Network reported Monday that Desai is a finalist for the New York Giants defensive coordinator job, which uh, is vacant right now under new head coach Brian Dable. So obviously, if he gets that, I assume he will take a defensive coordinator job over not Passing a defensive coordinator. coordinator job for the Seahawks, but uh, it, otherwise, perhaps a chance for Desai. I guess kind of a, a couple of interesting pieces here. You know, mid-last week, you mentioned this to me. We want to talk about the KJ Wright interview that happened on the Seahawks Man-to-Man podcast. We definitely do want to talk about that. And I feel like this is all sort of part of the priors that were potentially confirmed on that interview with KJ Wright. Many priors were confirmed. Which is, I mean, as we've, we've talked about this over and over and over again, and it's one thing for you and I to talk about it, even you and I and Mike to talk about it. It's another thing for K.J. Wright, who's been there in the building, experienced it, played under that defense, right? Correct. To say, this is Pete Carroll's defense, right? The the man with the gray hair, or whatever. Like, Did he use that phrase? Yeah, he was like, that's or maybe he said silver, I don't know. But he was like, that's up to the man with the silver hair, which I just freaking love also as a description of Pete Carroll. But like, this is Pete Carroll's defense no matter who is running it. Whether it's Clint Hurt, whether it's Ed Donatel, whether it's Sean Desai, whether it's Ken Norton. Yeah. And uh, I think when when I heard that interview with KJ Wright, I thought to myself, A, everything that we've ever thought is true. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I go that far. Everything we've ever thought specifically about Pete Carroll's influence on the defense. And offense as well. <laughs> yes. Also, when you look at this higher, you have to say to yourself, this makes a lot of sense. Because, you know, when we talked to Mike, Mike basically broke it down as like, they want to keep Clint around. Correct. Clint Hurd was clearly in contention for the defensive coordinator position with Mario Cristobal at his, his uh, uh, alma mater at the University of Miami. And to keep Clint Hurd around meant giving him the defensive coordinator position, right? Yes. So it's sort of like they do that. They keep a player around, or a person around that they really want to be there. Players in the building seem to like quite a bit. Reinforces yep. the defensive line, which we know that Pete cares about more than he cares about the secondary. It seems like. Uh, I don't know that I would say that. I mean, the secondary is his his like area of expertise. Maybe he's willing to hand off the defensive line a little bit more, but they've spent a lot more resources on the defensive line than they have in the secondary. Yeah, I think that's probably related to the fact that he thinks he can coach guys up in the secondary in a way that I don't think he does in the defense on the defensive line. But the way that Pete Carroll thinks you win a football game is to stop the run first. Is to stop the run. Yeah, and that's that's what this sort of points back to. It makes so much sense that the Seahawks would have a defensive coordinator who's coming from that defensive line coach position, who's somebody who's focused on getting the quarterback and stopping the run. 
I mean, the thing about it is you look at Pete Carroll's last three hires internally. They have been promoting the defensive secondary coach in Chris Richard, uh-huh. a linebacker coach in Ken <laughs> Norton Jr. Down. And That's a really line funny coach way I of So I don't know where they're going to go next, but uh, there's not a specific preference that they've shown. I, it's kind of hard to have a take about this beyond that. Yeah. <clears throat> As, you know, we've kind of talked about it when Ken Norton was let go. And I think that the conversation with KJ Wright sort of just reinforced that perspective of Ken Norton did the best that he possibly could in pretty difficult circumstances with the roster that he was given. And it's kind of funny where it's like, I think Ken KJ Wright's perspective was that the Seahawks defense doesn't have the talent to be an elite level defense. While at the same time sort of being like, Bobby Wagner's a bust to have there, or whatever, <laughs> right? Like, there's there were some contradictions that exist in that conversation, inherently. Because the way that K.J. Wright is seeing the world is so much based upon his worldview, right? And what he has seen personally is relationships. And so, like, as, as an outside fan, it's kind of like, you have to feel like, we're viewing this pretty correctly, <laughs> you know? Which is kind of a strange thing to say. I mean, obviously, the... Part of the reason that this was revelatory is because there was a certain segment of Seahawks fandom that pushed back and said, you know, this is Ken Norton Jr.'s fault, the defense we've seen the last few years. And, I mean, you know, one thing K.J. Wright did say repeatedly is it's a partnership between Mm -hmm. the two of them. Yeah. They're both involved. So it's not just Pete Carroll. Like, you know, Ken Norton's not just like a figurehead who is only there to, uh, you know, go pretend to be the defensive coordinator when Pete Carroll actually runs things, is you yourself have said Pete Carroll is a head coach. He's involved in everything. He doesn't have the ability to drill down at the same level that a defensive coordinator does. But at the end of the day, he's the one making the final decision. And, and the ethos yeah. is, is Pete Carroll's perspective. Good and bad, though. I mean, you have to give... Pete Carroll's been really good at winning football games. Like... I, he definitely has. There's almost no reason if you're Pete Carroll that you would say to yourself, there, you should always be thinking that you should be better, right? Honestly, if you have a win forever mindset, you should be thinking I could do better. Constantly. I'm sure you are with your team. Right? If you have, oh. You're not satisfied with that win on Saturday. Hey, big W, but let's get the fucking work. But uh, the if you have a win forever mindset, the most important part of that mindset is constant growth. And I think that's the piece that Pete Carroll seems to be missing to a certain extent, which is he can constantly be getting better. He's saying, I've won pretty much. No, I mean, I think Pete Carroll would tell you, look, hey, I'm going out and bringing in, granted, it's an old friend in Ed Donatel, but somebody who's been in an entirely different system, Vic Fangio's system, for a long period of time. We know that Clint Hurt came up in that system as well, has experience with it in Chicago, came up as probably too strong. We're trying to hire Sean Desai who is a disciple, no, no, of Vic Fangio. A disciple. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Clearly, there's no, an interest. No there. And clearly, there's an interest in it, adding that part, elements of that Vic Fangio philosophy to what they're doing as the Seahawks. It's maybe not as strong as if they did bring in Sean Desai as defensive coordinator, or certainly as strong as if they brought Vic in Vic Fangio as defensive coordinator. Yes. <laughs> but... I think there is a willingness to adapt to a degree. I don't. I just think the reality is, I'm. I think Pete Carroll wouldn't necessarily be against the idea of bringing in Vic Fangio, 
but understanding what that role means. I mean, Fangio's not wanting, he doesn't need Pete Carroll's oversight on defense, right? He's been a head coach. He's not looking to get micromanaged. It's tough to say exactly what those conversations would be like if they even existed at all, but, you know, it, it's not surprising that Vic Fangio is not going to be the Seahawks defensive coordinator <laughs> in no sense. But I don't think just because of the fact that they promoted Clint Hurt from internally means that there's not going to be any adjustment or change. I mean, obviously they were looking for some adjustment and change. That's why they fired Ken Norton. Yes. So, but I just, uh, I, I don't think we should expect any sort of like major changes on this defense. I don't think we should expect that the defense performs any better or any worse than they did last season, depending on the personnel. Yeah. So I, I understand that's not really like a great take or whatever, but like it is what it is. And, you know, we said we've seen Ed Donatel coach very good defenses. We've seen Ed Donatel coach some very bad defenses here in Seattle. Uh, And I think that's kind of who he is as a coordinator, but that's who everybody is as a coordinator. Right. The thing is, if you, if I you were a defensive the, coach for long enough, you're going to coach some good players and you're going to coach some bad players. I mean, Fangio's had some bad defensive seasons mixed in there. His yeah. first season in Chicago, when Clint Hurt was there, didn't go very well. I don't think that means that Vic Fangio is a bad defensive coach. No, it means that defensive coaches don't matter. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, Mike Sean kind of drilled that point home with KJ where he was like, you can scheme your way around offense a little bit, but it's very difficult to scheme your way around defensive talent. We've seen it in, you know, LA. Like, they've invested heavily in defensive talent, right? And they have probably the best defensive player in, in the last decade of football, maybe even of all time in football. And that's what you do is you invest, you invest heavily, I think, the resources. The way that I think about a football team is... It's complicated because there's only so much money to go around. What if you invest those resources in a guy who doesn't, you don't use his best attribute? Look, I think you're talking about Russ as a passer? (laughs) No, I was talking about Jamal Jamal Adams Adams. as a pass rusher. I I don't think they have any idea what to do with Jamal Adams. I don't know if anybody does necessarily, but like you obviously need to spend on a quarterback. Greg, Greg Williams do. You need to spend on a court. Were those Jets defenses good overall? No, no, That's no, the no. thing. It's like, just because Jamal Adams seemed good within the Jets defenses doesn't mean that he was a valuable defensive player. You know, Aaron Donald is probably would be good, irrelevant of the players around him. I think the Rams defense has basically been good the entire time Aaron Donald's been there, right? Uh, I don't know about his first couple seasons in the league. But you invest in a quarterback... You invest in receivers a little bit, and a receiver a little bit, and you need to spend money defensively. And the Seahawks really haven't. They've spent money on Bobby as he's aged. They spent resources on Jamal as he's aged. They didn't bring back Shaquille Griffin. They haven't necessarily invested that much. They've invested, you know. Well, obviously, when you have a starting quarterback who is making as much money as Russell Wilson is does. Is and does it's it a does limit it to some extent? It's a trade off, but they've also been like, here's five million, here's seven million, here's some chunks of money to a bunch of different defensive linemen who I feel like they could have possibly found at close to minimum deals. Clearly, they have not done a great job of managing their spending. And if you're bringing in Jamal Adams, he has to make a difference. You know, like Jamal Adams has to be a 
In 2016, the Rams were 32nd. Oh, no, that's offensive DVOA. I'm sorry, they were 17th in defense that year. So they've had a couple of average years with Aaron Donald on their roster, but they have been tough. Is that the last Jeff Fisher year? Uh, yes, yes, obviously it was. They actually were a pretty good defense even before Donald got there. The Rams have been a top 10 defense, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight of the last 10 years. Good God. Love having them in the division. Love it. So, yeah, they kind of just. It's like, okay, you saw it and you're like, all right. I mean, I would love if they bring Sean Asai in. It'd be awesome. I'm. Don't know if he should do that. <laughs> you don't know if you'd recommend agent, that. I'm not sure if I would be like, that's. I, you might be too many people's agents at this point. I could be a lot of people's agents. Were you willing to focus just on your career? On <laughs> <laughs> my WNBA trade grades. I actually think I I think you doing WNBA trade grades would. I don't know if it would increase your profile. It would definitely increase the WNBA profile, though. I, I think it's a pretty infinitesimal amount that it would. But, uh, I'm telling again, you, if you can share those, that's that's what people need. I've ta- I'm talking about the WNBA all the time. Well, we're going to have WNBA off-season grades coming up next week. So that's not the same. Be sure to pass those along. But it's something. It's something. People love grades. You do a WNBA trade grade, throw I'm that well on the ESPN socials. I'm people love grades. You know who doesn't love grades? You? The people writing the grades. <laughs> Mad about what you're getting paid a salary for. That's wild. <laughs> <sighs> you have another point on this? Oh, I just want to see if we could talk about the Super Bowl for a second. Oh, yeah. I guess we should talk about that. That's happening on Sunday. Oh, God. The good news is, you know who's not there? Tyler Higbee? No, the 49ers. Oh, okay. Only one NFC West team can make it. Unlike the champ- NFC Championship game. I'm, I'm honestly, like, as I fly down to L.A. on Friday, I'm pretty fascinated if I'm going to be on a plane. Like, it's from Seattle. Will there be Bengals fans on the plane? Rams fans? I mean, fans? maybe a few, but I don't think it's going to be, like, in the... Also, are you flying... You're flying into uh, to Flying Bob out Hope, of right? Burbank. I'm flying uh, into LAX. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, I can feel your judgment right now, and I don't... I don't know about it. judgment. Disappointment, <laughs> really. Sometimes the flights are a lot more expensive. I know. I know. I've flown into LAX before in my life, too. Oof. But I would say that that flight would be less likely to feature than one to LAX would be more likely to feature someone who is going for the Super Bowl. The Burbank flight? Because people are in the no flight at Burbank. Right. God damn it. Uh, I'm curious to see like what the energy is like. I'm I was actually curious. reminded when I was talking to Ben, though. We've been in LA for a Rams playoff game that was at home. That is correct. And it did not make a blip. <laughs> not remotely. I mean, that was a little bit early. They went to the Super Bowl that year, though, right? I we, guess that we was there. the year, yeah. They beat the Cowboys in a week in the first round of the playoffs. Yeah. So. And it, but it did not register. But they weren't LA, playing the at SoFi. And I feel like SoFi is, makes them feel a little more real than when they were playing at the Coliseum. I'm going to uh, give that a strong maybe. <laughs> I, I feel it'll like it's a, a It'll be a difference. big deal having the Super Bowl there. Yes. Having the Super Bowl there, but it's not as big of a deal as like if you were in Indianapolis and they were hosting the Super Bowl. Yes. Like literally all of downtown would be taken up by the Super Bowl. And LA is just too big for that to be but the case. The scale is too massive. The percentage of people in Indi- in Indianapolis who live in Indianapolis who are Colts fans is probably like eighty percent, right? Probably Maybe. something like that, yeah. The percentage of people in Los Angeles who are Rams fans, like the most the most dominant 
group of people in LA is probably don't care about football. Raiders fans. And Maybe then, Cowboys. Raiders and Cowboys, I feel like, are Raiders, probably the two most popular. Cowboys, Niners, Broncos, Packers, Patriots. Uh, no, like you could just go down because teams fans who are in you're you're talking about like transplants. But I mean I have people from LA who didn't have teams there. Well, yes, those are Raiders fans. But I'm saying people who currently live in Los Angeles, like there just aren't, I don't know how you become a Rams fan, <laughs> right? Like you have well, to. You can latch on to it even if you, you have had a team. You have been a free agent fan. Who I, just, think, I think there's probably some fans who defected. But like, what is that percentage? It's tiny. I, I, I don't know the exact percentage. I assume it's going up a bit, but I, I'm very fascinated to see if like what the energy is like that they're, I just, Tampa's another weird city that they've had these back-to-back Super Bowls that were in their hometowns where it's like, I assume most of Tampa's Bucks fans, but it's just not like, doesn't feel like a football town. Really. There's also a retiree aspect in Florida. Yeah. So, And then you have LA. So I'm curious to see how that goes. Uh, but I'm also fascinated about, this is a Chris Smith point. So we've got the halftime show. Yeah. Dr. Dre. Yep. Snoop Dogg. Yep. Kendrick Lamar. Yep. Mary J. Blige. Yeah. Where does Kendrick Lamar fit in this halftime show? You know <laughs> the songs that they're going to play, Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg, right? Oof. What songs, like, are they going to be, like, I'm sure we'll hear Humble or whatever, but, like, Kendrick Lamar doesn't really have hit songs with any of the other people involved in the halftime show. It's kind of a wild card. Like, he's from L.A., and I understand that, but it's not like it's, there's no Eminem, right? But uh, I think there might be. Okay. I feel like Mike Sean had a tweet about that, actually. Um, but Eminem has more songs. Oh, Eminem is part of it. Okay, I take that back. So, like, Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Eminem, right? All have big songs together. Kendrick Lamar <laughs> is such a wild card as part of this that maybe it's just like he's like the the youth. He's the person who's part of the like Dr. Dre coaching tree right, or whatever. And he's the youngest one. So he, it might be like one or two Kendrick songs or something, but primarily focus on Dr. Dre. Yeah. It's a wild card. Do you think we'll see holographic Tupac or is that era over? I think that era is over. Do you think they do California love? Oh, that's a good question. Super Bowl in LA. It is. Yeah. LA team playing. I think you kind of have to. Do you think Kendrick Lamar raps the Tupac verse? Um, these all sound like things that are like prop bets. I mean, I'm just, I'm honestly just curious. Like, I'm like more curious about this halftime show. I've never really cared about any halftime show, but like, this is a fascinating one. You're you're going directly from finding out whether Matthew Stafford can win a Super Bowl to finding out what's going to happen with uh, with Kendrick. I'm a lot more excited about that. Well, of course, there's nothing but down, not nothing but downside. There's some potential upside for you if Matthew Stafford really plays poorly in the Super Bowl. You can say like, you know, he's very good to get you to the Super Bowl, but to oh. win the Super Bowl, if they you score need a better three points again in the Super Bowl, like I mean, the bar is set so low for their offense again. But if they lose again, like I think losing in the Super Bowl is pretty devastating for a franchise. Oh, really? Never, never, not familiar with that. This franchise in particular, if they were to lose. Like, there's one thing. Losing to the Tom Brady and the Patriots is one thing. Losing to the Cincinnati Bengals is a totally different thing. It could be a dark Monday for you and uh, when are you flying out of L.A.? Monday. 
A dark Monday. It'll be the greatest day of my life. Well, for the city of L.A. <laughs> There'll be as many Bengals fans as there are Rams there. I love that. <laughs> Do you have any feeling on the game itself? Uh, you know, Ben Baldwin tweeted that Cincinnati's run has been fueled by a lot of defensive turnovers. Now, they may get some of those because they're playing Matthew Stafford, but it's not a thing you can necessarily count on. So the the Rams do seem like the clear favorites, but it's also one game, so anyone can win. Mm-hmm. I I keep coming back to, this is obviously not the same because you look at the talent now and what they've done, but that LSU game against Alabama in the national championship, when I really felt like, it was like, yeah, cool. It's, it's cool that LSU's gotten here, but they're not. They're not going to keep it up now. And then they to beat the shit out of them. It's like, oh crap! Like this is this is really real. Yeah. It kind of like if you would ask me going to that game, what the percentage chances of winning for LSU were, I'd probably be like, I don't know, thirty five percent. And I feel like I would sort of like say the same thing about this one i mean that's what ben said the implied odds are like 64 percent for the rams or something like wow, that there we go so so but a 35 percent chance in a single game is i don't know you assume that the rams are the favorite but it's not a huge difference and i was actually thinking that also. it's almost like there's a 35 percent chance they could lose the well the 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 defensive turnover that they had the big man pick against mahomes i was like that totally swayed the game I don't yeah. think you count on that happening again, but they are playing against Matt Stafford, so we're just going to see. We sure will. On that note, we'll, I'll be back next week with coverage, not in Coach's Corner, but from Los Angeles uh, as, as the Super Bowl happens, and we'll be either very happy about it or very, very upset about it. It's going to be Hater's Corner next week. There we go. Uh, Thanks so much for listening to the last 100 episodes, or if you've just listened to this one. Thanks for listening. Yeah, you don't have to listen to the entire 100. Thanks.